Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I'm your host, Simon Wimes here. One of my writers, in this case, Matt. Thank you, Matthew, has written me a script. James Huberty, The Massacre at McDonald's. Um, yeah, I've never heard of this one, which is uh, unusual. It sounds like a massacre. That's that, you know, that's that. Oh, God. I think Matt even sent me an email being like, brace yourself, boss. This one's going to be rough. And I, oh, no. Although, no, to be quite honest, the episode that I recorded before this uh, was one on Albert Fish, who ate children. So, yeah, um, challenge accepted. <laughs> to brace myself, what am I talking about? Let's just go. McDonald's, hands down the biggest and most recognizable food chain in the world. Hell, in all of modern history. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, KFC, anybody? No, I know McDonald's is more recognizable, but also KFC is delicious. I love your chicken. I love you. The golden arches have been a sign of comfort and full bellies for close to a hundred years. Anyone else have McDonald's? And then it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty full. And then like two hours later, I'm hungry again. <laughs> What's up with McDonald's? It's like, I, I know there's a lot of calories in there. It's like you eat the Big Mac, the large fries and uh, normally a Coke Zero. People are always like, why do you have a Coke Zero with the Big Mac? And it's like, well, <laughs> they're like, that's contradictory. And it's like, well, I don't need the extra calories from the liquids. I'm getting enough extra calories from the, the, the fried food, aren't I? It's like a thousand calories plus at least. And then two hours later, I'm like, yeah, I could have a snack. What's up with that? KFC, I'll have it. A thousand calories plus. And I'll be like, I'm full. I don't want dinner. <laughs> I got the feeling it's something to do with carbohydrates. From the Big Mac to the McFlurry, it has something for everyone, although quality varies. It's a place to relax, a place to bring your friends or your family, a place to bring your kids so they'll shut up after them getting a happy meal. Preach, Matt! Preach! Yeah, I, I definitely do that. Also, my experience, I think I've told this story before, is that US McDonald's versus European McDonald's. And European like, I feel there's a very just clear ranking of McDonald's, at least if we compare the US, the UK, and continental Europe. Um, US has the worst McDonald's in my limited experience. I've been to a few of them. I went to one in somewhere in Los Angeles. I went to one in Seattle. The one in Seattle was a special experience. It was horrible. And the food was bad. There were homeless people. There was a security guard. It was dirty. All of the furniture was like this plastic shit that we got rid of in Europe like 20 years ago. And it was not a nice experience. UK McDonald's, slightly better. Like generally a slightly better experience. European McDonald's is genuinely quite nice. Like people never believe me with this, but I'm like, travel to Europe, go to a McDonald's. Don't go in the UK. Yeah, I mean, you can go in the UK if you want, but it's similar to America, more similar. But European McDonald's, there's something called McCafe. It's like a coffee shop in McDonald's, which has nice coffee and cakes and shit and like nice chairs. It's a different experience. It's an American staple, and you'd never think of one of the worst massacres in American history actually taking place inside such a beloved eating establishment. Look, Matt, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you again, but massacres take place in primary schools or elementary schools as you... Or was that, was it Uvalde, where all those children were killed? It's like, that's insane. I think we did a video on this show about Columbia. Um, uh, sorry, not Columbia. Co Columbine, which I got in trouble because I pronounced it... Columbine? Columbine? Columbine. And I think they basically are the same. People are like, Simon doesn't know how to pronounce Columbine. It's like Columbine, what are you talking about? And uh, that video was released and I held, it was like we made it just as that was happening. And then I was like, what am I supposed to do? Sit on this for ages. And uh, no, because I'm a hero, absolute mega hero, we donated the money from it to... Uh, one of the victims' families, something like that. We found one on uh, was it GoFundMe or some such like that. <laughs> Barely remembering now. <laughs> That's how much of an impact it made on me. I'm just kidding. 
obviously that stuff's disgusting. Simon, dearest audience, it's time we journey once again into the past almost 40 years. The day was July the 8th, 1984 in San... Ysidro in California. We see a family arriving home for what appears to be a good day. The family consists of 41-year-old James Huberty, his wife Etna, their two daughters Zelia and Cassandra, and they've just spent their morning at the San Diego Zoo along with getting lunch at a nearby McDonald's in the neighborhood of Claremont. Sounds like a fun time. Animals and a happy meal. A good day all round. Oh, I don't like this because it's like the sort of shit I'd do with my... I went to the zoo with my kids last weekend and then we did go for fast food. Ah! I don't like it! Except... Oh no, wait, James is the bad guy? James had darker plans in mind for the rest of his day? Oh no, (laughs) I just put myself in James's shoes. No! You see, several days before, on July the 15th, James had made the comment to Etna that he thought he might have something wrong with him, that he might have some mental problems. Then on July the 17th, the day before everything we're about to talk about transpired, James made a call to the San Ysidro Health Center's mental health unit. He spoke with the receptionist and said he thought he needed help and that he'd like an appointment as soon as possible. The receptionist assured him that the clinic would return his call that same day in order to set everything up for him and that they would take care of him. Really? It's quite impressive. I feel like you'd phone someone like this and they'd be like, yeah, next appointment's in uh, six months. Seems like a good start, right? James believed something was wrong with his brain, so he reached out for help. That is remarkably, um, what's the word? Like when you realize something, like most people just like, oh no. It's like if you hear, I, I, don't, I don't know what's wrong with him yet. Obviously we'll get there. But it's like if you hear people talking to you genuinely, generally people are, aren't they like, no, people are talking to me. They're not like, I have a problem let's go see a psychiatrist. They're like, it's the CIA. Takes a lot for someone to seek help, especially men. But you see, this help should have come a long time ago as the darkness had been building up within James Huberty for practically his entire life. Emotionally stunted and terminally paranoid, he believed that the entire world was out to get him and that everything bad that had happened in his life was the fault of the world, with no thought that he could have been the cause. Now James waited and waited hours on end end for the phone to ring, hoping that somebody would be able to help him through his dark time, that they would stop him from taking matters into his own hands and doing something awful. Unfortunately, that call never came, and all because of the way the receptionist handled the call. First off, not only had she misspelled his name, Schuberty, instead of Huberty, but it also spoken with a pleasant, nonchalant tone, not the usual frantic, urgent tone she was probably used to. Because of all this, and the fact that not only had he refused to state the nature of his problem, but also informed her that he had never been hospitalized for mental health issues before and was not on medication or a treatment plan, she put him down as a low-risk case, which would result in a callback within 48 hours, not the same day as she stated. Yeah, I don't like that. I know it's necessary, but like when you phone the doctor and it's like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, just get something checked out. Like it's not, it's not an embarrassing thing. <laughs> okay, I'll be bold about this. Like, I was like checking myself out in the shower about a year ago. What you do? And I'm like, oh, you know, like men do uh, down below. And I'm like, oh, that feels a bit different. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, go see the doctor and just make sure everything's okay. Everything was fine. He's just like, there's nothing. You don't have to worry about it. And um. But I phone up and I'm like, yeah, like at an appointment with the doctor. And they're like, what's it for? And I'm just, I just want to see the doctor, okay? I want to talk to the doctor. I don't want to have the receptionist write it down. It's a book. And I know it's stupid because it's just, I mean, they must deal with this shit all day, every day. But I'm just like, I just want to tell the doctor in a private room in person. I don't want to tell it over the phone or in an email to a receptionist. (laughs) Oh, God. Unfortunately, this seemed to be the final straw for James Huberty. After hours of waiting for a call only to be met with silence, he left the house in a huff, jumped onto his motorcycle, and sped off. Where he went is unknown, but he returned later that night in what appeared to be a better mood. Everything seemed okay 
until the next day, that is. While spending time with their children at the zoo, James spoke with Edna, and he revealed to her that he believed his life was over. Oh my god. A bit dramatic if you ask me, but given what we'll soon discover about the man, it's par for the course. When the talk turned specifically to how he never received a call back when he actually reached out for help, James held nothing back, giving Edna a glimpse of the darkness to come. Well, society had their chance. After returning home, Edna was laying on her bed relaxing after the fun morning when James entered the room wearing a maroon t-shirt and camouflage slacks. Walking up to her, he bent down and said, I want to kiss you goodbye. To Etna, this was very odd. James was never an affectionate man, so this was going against character. She kissed him regardless, and when he turned to leave, she asked him where he was going as she had plans to prepare a nice dinner for the whole family. It's now that, as the darkness consumes us once again, we dive into the tale of a man consumed by his own hatred, paranoia, and desire for revenge. Revenge against a world that had not done anything overtly wrong to him. A world that didn't even know he existed, though perhaps that was the problem in his mind. He wanted the world to know who he was, know his anger, know his pain. Pain he believed that the world had created, when in reality it was his own doing. As James Huberty turned to his wife for the final time, we hear his answer. An answer filled with underlying rage, masked by cold indifference. The words of the monster. I'm going hunting. Hunting for humans. This ties in, right? The fact that he's never accepting that anything bad in his life is caused by him. And then he's, I feel that's very tied into the fact that he's like, yeah, I'm going to seek help. And then the help doesn't get back to him. And it be, it does seem unusual that you think you can just phone up and just get an appointment like that for like something, right? It's, it's usually you have to wait or like reach out to someone else and stuff like that. And I feel like he's just making an excuse for himself. Life of a loner. James Oliver Huberty was born on October the 11th, 1942, in Canton, Ohio. The second child to parents, Earl and Eichel, Eichel, Huberty? Two devoutly religious Methodists. And because of that, they and their kids were regular worshippers at the United Methodist Church. As a result, religion had a huge impact on James's life and his outlook on things for both better and for worse. It didn't take long for life to kick James in the nuts, as by the time he was three years old, James had contracted polio. Wait, when the f*** is this happening? <laughs> I forgot when this is set. 1984, 40 years old. No, sorry, 41 years old in 1984. Okay, so yeah. Is, uh, was there polio around in the early 1940s? Hadn't Salk, was it Salk with polio? Hadn't he done his thing by then? For all ten of you who don't know what polio is, simply put, it's an infectious and debilitating disease that can cause severe paralysis as well as meningitis in those infected. You can only imagine how painful and horrifying such a condition must have been for a young child, especially when it started attacking his nervous system. Yeah, polio's insane. It's like um, FDR was in a wheelchair because of polio. Um, also, they have iron lungs. People, I think, I saw a video on YouTube about this. It's one of those videos that's been on YouTube. It's probably like uploaded like 15 years ago and everyone's seen it about the people who live in iron lungs because they were paralyzed from polio so they can't breathe and they've just lived their whole lives in these giant metal breathing machines, which is intense. That's what polio is. Get your kids vaccinated. Don't. Is polio a vaccine thing or have we eradicated that? I think there is a polio vaccine, but they don't give it to in countries where there's not much polio, right? Because of vaccines getting rid of it, remember? Get your kids vaccinated. Don't be an idiot. And people will be like, Simon, it's my choice. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Cool, it's my choice to think you're an idiot. To help manage the disease, James was required to wear steel and leather braces upon both legs. Is that what happened to Forrest Gump? 
Did Forrest Gump have polio? Why was he wearing those braces on his legs? Even though he was able to recover from all of the symptoms, he would have a mild limp for the rest of his life, a constant reminder of the pain and humiliation he felt as a child. If that wasn't bad enough, his home life was about to change for the worst. In 1950, Earl Huberty purchased and moved the family to a 155-acre farm in Mount Eaton, Ohio. Seems like a pleasant little town, very sleepy and unassuming, especially if you're a fan of Amish folk. <laughs> Huge fan of the Amish. They're such a laugh. Iggle, on the other hand, was incensed about the whole thing. She didn't want to live in a rural area and refused to even look at the property before the purchase, leaving the relationship with her husband very much on the rocks. <laughs> hey, dear, I've got some news. We're moving to a farm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what? James? <laughs> what? What was his name? Sorry, not James. Was it Earl? Was his name Earl? Yeah. What are you doing, Earl? You could have consulted me first, Earl. Although this was the 1950s and I've seen Mad Men, so I know how it was back then. <laughs> it's just like we're moving to a farm. Okay, dear, sound lovely. It all came to a head when the super-religious Ickle, I don't know if his name is Ickle, or it's spelt I-C-L-E. It's a name I've never seen before. Uh, he felt called, called to become a Pentecostal missionary. Feeling this excuse was her to get out, she abandoned her husband and children when James was only seven years old, moving to Arizona to preach the good word on the sidewalks. This betrayal left deep emotional and mental scars on James, with his father telling of how he'd hear him sobbing uh, by the chicken coop on their property, and others having testified that he blamed God for taking his mother away. No, your mother took herself away, and that is a really shitty thing to do. I don't understand. Like, I'd always want to take my kids if I was running away. I'd be like, come with me. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Not that I ever would. But, like, if I was in that situation, you'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's just so bizarre. Like, I, <laughs> I've put so much effort into my children. At the very least, it's like, oh, my God, the sunk costs of these kids. It's like, no. It's yes. And also, you know, also because I love them, but that's a <laughs> second fact of those bloody sunk costs. As James grew up and made his way through school, he'd kept himself almost constantly wanting nothing more than to be left alone. One of the reasons for this seems to be because of the constant whispering and ostracizing of the other children. I think we can all agree that kids can be dicks sometimes, especially to those different from, and this case was no different. James came from a broken home, and this concept was very alien to the children around him who grew up within the Amish and Mennonite communities. James came from a bad home, so they whispered about him, refusing to socialize with him, though to James this was perfectly fine. James was content being by himself, being a loner for most of his life, and having no interest in the same things that the other kids had interest in. This didn't stop him from becoming angry, though. A side effect of the constant pain and irritation from his bout of polio, James had a very short temper, and he would quickly become enraged if someone were to slight him in any way. It could be the smallest thing. It could even be something that wasn't meant to harm him, but James would always take things personally and would become furious at the drop of a hat. His environment didn't help either, as the kids angered him on a daily basis, and there's even reports of a teacher who, after getting into a confrontation with James while he was staying inside for recess, sneered at him and said, "'If you were a real man like all the other boys,' you'd be out playing football. What a wonderful and uplifting teacher she was. <laughs> obvious sarcasm is obvious. Children are so impressionable. I think back on like experiences I had with teachers and the vast majority was like super positive. Like generally I think back on school and the vast majority of interactions I had with teachers were always really good. And but then I do think back on like the few times when they weren't and they really stick with you. And it's really weird. Because like nowadays, if someone says something to me, I'm just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm a big, I'm a big boy. <laughs> I can take it. But when you're a kid, you're like much more impressionable and sensitive, especially when it's an adult who's someone who's like in a position of authority. And I'm always like, teachers should know better. You should know that children are super impressionable. And like, 
Think about what you say to kids. Children are serious stuff. James hated everyone around him. He hated speaking to anyone. He thought that everyone was always plotting against him, and his attitude only festered as he grew and got older. It seems to, but James has a, a seemingly loving wife and family. Like these people, I know. Like you don't really expect the. I, I mean, when you're a kid, it's like who knows? You grow up and you could be a completely different person. Not the same person I was when I was a kid, and. But in my mind, I'm kind of like, yeah, James is a weirdo. He'll grow up to be a weirdo. But obviously, James got his shit together at some point, except apparently he didn't. One thing that James seemed to have an affinity for ever since his high school years was, of course, guns. He loved going to target practice, usually being found at the shooting range, letting out his anger and frustration with each pull of the trigger. I also really enjoyed this. We had a, a shooting range at school. And I'd go there at least like one or two. It was <laughs> like not like an American shooting range where you're like shooting images of people with big guns. It was like a rifle range. So you'd go there and you'd shoot little two two rifles as part of the, the cadet stuff. And I loved that. And I had a little air rifle at home that I would be out in the garden like shooting stuff and getting really good at shooting stuff. <laughs> and just because you do it like hours and hours, it's really enjoyable. I like shooting guns. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh my God, am I James in this story? No, obviously not, because I'm not going out hunting for humans because that's insane. Liking guns is liking guns. But I don't know. I like guns. And I like clay pigeon shooting and stuff. It's a laugh. I'm as concerned about Simon as you are. Hell, at one point, a family friend described James as a queer little boy who practiced incessantly with a target pistol. And by the time he was in high school, he was seen as, seen as an amateur gunsmith being able to clean and repair his own guns with ease. No, not a red flag at all. I it's steady. I mean, look, just because you like guns, it's a hobby. It's a hobby. <laughs> right? <laughs> I haven't shot a gun in a long time. I've thought about getting my gun license here. Uh, but, you know, I don't have time for hobbies. In 1960, James graduated from Wayndale High School, 51st out of the 77th student class. Fun fact, James hated being around people so much that he didn't even shop for his high school graduation photo, his spot simply remaining blank within the yearbook. Enrolling at Malone University at Jesuit Community College two years later in 1962, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology. Ironic, isn't it? Sociology is literally defined as the social science of society, human social behavior, patterns of social relationships, social interactions, and aspects of culture associated with everyday life. <laughs> it's all the stuff he doesn't like and is rubbish at. It would like be me studying veterinary science. In other words, it's like, I like animals. There was just a, there's a there's an ongoing meme because on one of my other channels, I said that I'd committed dog genocide before I murdered a single human being. <laughs> Just as a joke. And great joke, Simon, by the way. Brilliant sense of humor right there. And uh, people were up in arms about this, saying that dogs are more valuable than humans, which I staunchly disagree with. And so from then on, there seems to be this meme that I hate animals. And I don't. I don't hate animals at all. Um, but that's why I made the joke about me becoming a vet, because people think I hate animals. I don't know. I quite like animals. I, I, I'm, I'd like to get a cat, to be honest. I like cats. I had cats when I was a kid. Nice little animals. Could this have been his first real cry for help? Perhaps he thought that if he studied the things that he both hated and couldn't understand to be able to put them into practice, that his life might be different. But even with his fancy degree, it couldn't change what in the end he didn't see as a problem. The problem wasn't himself, but the world and the people around him, and he couldn't face the reality of him being in the wrong. While attending Malone University, James met Etna Markland. It's unclear what made her different from all of the other people around him, but whatever it was, James took a fancy to her and they began dating. Soon after graduating, the two married, in 1965 and began living together in James's father's house. James despised school with a passion and finally being free of it was a great relief. But like most people, James had goals and to fulfill those goals, he had to return to school. He wanted to be a funeral director and an embalmer. <laughs> he loves guns. 
He wants to be a funeral director. I'm sure there are people who want to be in funeral directors and in barbers who are completely normal people. And I'm sure the vast majority are, but it does seem a bit weird in the context of this episode, doesn't it? So he enrolled in the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science. James begrudgingly went through with his studies and soon graduated from the Institute with honors, being issued with a funeral director's license and the following year, an embalmer's license. But it wasn't so that he could have his way with the corpses. From all the information I could find, James Hoberty never had any sexual proclivity towards the dead, nor were there any corpses found that were, let's say, mishandled. No, James seemed to drift towards the profession for the simple reason that he believed it was the one job where he could he could find where he could be left alone. <laughs> oh, God. I also, like, I just work alone. Like, I just sit in my office by myself and record videos, and I love it. Like, I don't like having meetings. I don't like having to... I just do everything by email. Because <laughs> I don't like... I, I just like being left alone. And it's not because I don't like people. I like people. I just like... It's a distraction. Like, I've got a lot of work to do. And if I have to talk to people at work, it's like, well, I'm getting less work done, aren't I? And despite that, somehow I've, I've managed, I've got six meetings on the calendar today. And I'm not sure quite how I managed that. So I'm not going to get much done today. I'm squeezing this in in an hour between these phone calls. Half an hour left, by the way. So let's crack on. There's definitely going to be a break in this episode that will be imperceptible to you. Well, I will leave go do a call for, I think, half an hour, and then I'll come back. Upon graduating, he apprenticed at the Don Williams Funeral Home as an undertaker for two years, though he would almost constantly be reprimanded by his co-workers and superiors for his behavior and lack of proper effort on the job. So what does that mean, you might ask? Well, James constantly tried to stay in the back in the embalming room, preferring to be by himself with the eternally silent corpses that being upfront and dealing with the grieving families as a good funeral director should. Why didn't he just become an embalmer? Like, funeral director? It's always like that person has to be like super considerate. They're always like, hello, yes, how are you? Yes, yes. And it's the person at the funeral you're like, you don't know. You're like, oh, okay, okay. And I've been to a few funerals and you're like, ah, oh, this dude, okay. And they're always like quite similar and like courteous and thoughtful and soft-spoken. And it sounds like James would be pretty shit at this. But being an embalmer, just go do that. Do we embalm bodies in the UK? I don't think so. Because we don't have these open casket funerals, which I thought was a bit weird. Like, I don't know, I've never, I've never seen a dead person. And I'm quite happy to have never seen a dead person. Thank you very much. I did go to that bodies exhibition, you know, where they have the, the, the bones and stuff and the muscles, which was fascinating. And those people, I guess, are real and also dead. So I guess in a way I have, but that felt very scientific. And when he was forced to be upfront with the customers, he was short, blunt, and as antisocial as ever. At times when the family, still in the process of mourning the loss of their loved ones, would take longer than James would like, he'd be witness pacing back and forth on the showing room floor, muttering, get out under his breath over and over again. And if and when that failed to drive them off, the piece of this piece of work went so far as to turning the lights off on the families. Oh my god, this guy would have terrible Google reviews. Don Williams, the owner of the funeral home, recounted his experience with Huberty, saying he was a good embalmer, but he just didn't relate to people. That's why he was better as a welder. He could just put that mask down and be by himself. Wait, he became a welder? <laughs> okay. Indeed, after it became clear that James wasn't cut out for work in the funeral home, he needed to be alone, and his hatred for people getting in his own way again, he left his job and soon began a new career as a welder, first at a firm in Louisville before becoming an apprentice at the Babcock and Wilcox utility plant in 1969. Surely there are plenty of jobs where you can just be left alone. I always think, like, data entry... And stuff? Aren't you just like in a cubicle most of the time, or like just a work from home job? I don't know. I've never. I've literally like since being uh, since I was a kid. I don't think I've ever really had a job where I've had to work with people. 
it's always just being left alone. Well, apparently, shockingly, he was reported as being good at it, with many of his co-workers saying that he was a very reliable worker despite being a silent recluse. Yeah, I don't know. That's fine. He could be really good at welding. He's just shit with people. He was a good embalmer. He just wants to be left alone. Hell, he was so good at his job that he earns prom- that he earned promotion after promotion, earning between $25,000 and $30,000 per year. 138 to 166 grand adjusted for 2023 inflation. And that was in the mid-1970s. Oh my god, okay, he's making some bank. Not too shabby, especially back in the day. James and Edna had it so good that the two of them moved. Is a welder? Welders make so much money? How long, how long does it take to learn to become a welder? I guess this is one of those things where I'm like, I think it's low skill. Or not low skill, but like medium level skill. It's not like you're a doctor or something. And you're making a lot of money. I know doctors in the US probably make more than that. But I feel that's probably what like a doctor makes in the UK, isn't it? I don't know. Especially with the crappy exchange rates. They moved into a three-story home in the very wealthy neighborhood of Massillon, Ohio. This didn't last long, as sadly the home was destroyed in a fire in 1971, though they still had enough money to move into a new house on the exact same street and build a six-unit apartment on the site of their old house, renting it out to others for money. Seems like James really knows what he's doing. Soon enough, they welcomed their two daughters into the world, Zelia in 1972 and Cassandra in 1974. The Shadow in the Crowd But Matt... I hear you saying, sure, this man seems to be socially awkward, and yes, he has a pretty piss-poor attitude, but he seems like he's doing fairly well and has a family despite it all. What's the problem? I mean, does he have a piss-poor attitude? It it just doesn't like people. He seems to be a very good welder and he keeps getting promoted, so obviously he's got a great attitude towards welding. He just wants to be left alone. If I had someone like this working for me, who's talented, but just wants to be left alone, I'd be like, great, go do your thing, I'll leave you alone, and here's some money. Right? You gotta, like, as a manager, it's your job to identify those people, like, as the manager of this welding company or whatever, and be like, cool, we'll just get James to go and, like, weld all day. He'll be extremely productive. (laughs) Indeed, on the outside, James seemed to have been a success. He had a wife and daughters, he had a house, he was making a good bit of money. But when we take a peek behind the curtain, the picture starts to become clear. His life was like a roller coaster. He was on his way to the top, but soon enough it had to plummet down. And in this case, he did it all to himself. Behind closed doors, things weren't so hunky-dory. On more than one occasion, James would viciously beat Etna. Oh my god. So the, this is like crazy. I'm like, I'm not defending the guy or anything, but it's like, everything seems fine. He seems to be doing quite well. And then it's like, oh yeah, no, he's a piece of shit. To the point where she actually contacted the Canon Department of Children and Family Services, reporting that James had messed up her jaw. But sadly, like a good number of domestic abuse cases, not only did she not leave him, but she would backtrack almost as soon as she made said claims, making the excuse that in those fights she'd only hit only hit her she'd only hit only hit her once. Sorry, like that actually made it better. I mean, look, getting hit once is obviously uh, better than getting hit a hundred times. Does it make it okay? No. And yet, Etna would later say, I always figured there was a strong chance that he'd kill me one day. Good lord. <laughs> so yeah, the antagonist of our piece today is a wife-beating douchebag. So far, so normal for the casual criminalist, so that's not surprising. He didn't just stick it to his wife, though. Oh no, because his little girls were beaten just as horribly. Slaps and flat-out punches were a regular occurrence for Zelia and Cassandra, with their father refusing to hold back in his punishments. How could it get worse? Or how about putting a knife to their throats on more than one occasion? That's right, James Huberty threatened his little girls with death several times when they were younger, and it wasn't just knives either, he'd pull his guns too. I could never possibly even comprehend doing something like that. That is insane. They are children. They are your children. 
Not that I do this to other people's children either, but it's just like, they're your children! According to Etna, there was a time when James was particularly cross with their daughter Zelia, so he acted in kind. She recalled one day when Zelia, after making James angry, went flying into her bedroom with an Uzi pointed at her. We don't blame the victims on this channel, far from it, but at this point, this is when you leave and take the kids with you, something that Etna did not do. No, we don't. And obviously, um, if she was acting in a rational way and wasn't in this situation, she'd be like, yeah, obviously she should leave. Um, but that's not how it works. I mean, it's how it should work. And if you're in that situation, just get it, get out, like work it out. Simon, it's so simple, but it's not. It's complicated. And what's that condition called? Like the the beaten wife syndrome or whatever? Is that it? Where you're like you're afraid to leave, even though you, and you're afraid to stay. There's a name for that, right? Their neighbors weren't safe from his erratic and hateful behavior either. To them, he was an irritable, irrational, irrational, and downright paranoid person with no trespassing signs posted all around the house. His love of firearms was well known to all of them, and more on, on more than one occasion, they were scared out of their wits by the sound of gunfire from the house. James's excuse: he had built a homemade gun range in the basement of his house. However, perhaps the creepiest thing about James in the regard to the people living around him was that James had a mental list. On said list was every single infraction, setback, insult, frustration, and slight that he perceived was perpetrated against either him or his family. And some of them were admittedly real, but nowhere close to the degree that, to the degree that James felt they were. And a number of them were total figments of his imagination, occurrences that were never intended to be malicious, but James took them as such, and so they were added to the list. And to James, the only way to rectify these attacks to himself and his family was to get even. Every injustice was met with payback, just as bad if not worse, and more often than not, this led to James being charged and detained for disorderly conduct, though they never stuck. This included an incident where James went into, onto his porch with one of his rifles, aimed it at the neighbors as they passed, only to laugh and go back inside without a care in the world. Did they see him? Isn't that assault? Like, if someone's pointing a gun at you, I'm fairly sure that's a crime. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? James also passed on this belief to his daughters, telling them to physically assault any of the kids in the neighborhood if they ever angered them. Etna was no better, as it's documented that she once told her daughter Zelia to punch a girl at a birthday party after they'd had a disagreement. When the girl's mother confronted Etna about it, Etna threatened to shoot the mother with one of their 9mm pistols, which Etna was charged and jailed for it, although the gun wasn't confiscated. What, America? Look, if you're, if you're jailed for a gun crime, no more guns. Okay? That, that makes sense, right? Like, you committed a crime with guns. Your right to guns is now taken away. Right? Like, and isn't, there's the thing in the Constitution about that right to bear arms. But it's like, yo, and you've also got right to freedom unless you're in prison. Or whatever, you know? This sort of thing. They can take that away. Surely. Come on. Take the guns away. You've committed gun crimes. Animals weren't safe either, not even his own. One incident involved James threatening to kill one of his neighbor's dogs after it popped into his yard. I understand not liking animal feces on the lawn, but that's an overreaction, no matter the incident, especially if the neighbor picked it up. Oh yeah, my parents used to be driven posse. <laughs> the neighbors had a cat and it would always come and take a in the garden, in our garden. And it was, my, my parents were never pleased about that. And my dad was always like, shoot the bloody cat. <laughs> Another example was when one of his neighbors complained about James's German shepherds as the animal had scratched up the neighbor's car and he wasn't pleased. So what did James do? Well, after fixing the man with a cold death glare, he said he'd take care of it. Grabbing the dog and pulling it to the backyard, he pulled out a pistol and murdered his own dog by shooting it in the head for the neighbor to see. Oh my f***ing god. 
The neighbor, of course, was horrified. When he angrily confronted James, telling him it had gone way too far, James simply stared back at him with that same hateful look, coldly stating, I believe in paying my debts, both good and bad. You mega psycho, bro. And they would be like, whoa, James, that's not what I meant. You just had to fix the pain work, James. Jesus. Society had their chance. Not only was James an extremely paranoid man, but he was also a massive conspiracy theorist and survival nut. The Cold War was in full swing at this point, and he believed it was close to escalating, which would be full-blown nuclear war. On top of that, his paranoia drove him to believe that foreign bankers had infiltrated and manipulating the Federal Reserve System, intentionally bankrupting the nation, which would lead to a full societal and financial collapse. <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, even if that was happening, what can I possibly do about it? I am just a man. <laughs> The Federal Reserve has been infiltrated by bankers. It's like, okay. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe not. How does this affect my life? Buy some gold? I don't know. As we know, this never happens, but that never stops the nutjobs, does it? To prepare for this, not only did James buy tons and tons of non-perishable food, but he also stocked up on a multitude of guns. Just what you need in the coming apocalypse, gun, guns, 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 and even more guns, especially with a man that's clearly a bit rattled upstairs. To be fair, though, if the apocalypse was coming, I'd be like, yeah, I want some guns. <laughs> Shit's gonna get real. <laughs> Every single room in the house had at least one gun, all within reach of James at all times, and each one with the safety disabled. Such a big brain move, especially with children in the house. And again, obvious sarcasm is obvious. Yeah, it reminds me of that Stargate, you know, Stargate SG-1, where Jack O'Neill's kid accidentally kills himself with one of his guns. And it's like, Jesus Christ. I'm always like, if I, I, I'd, I don't think I'd keep guns in the house. Like, I'd keep the guns at the range or whatever. Because even if they're locked up and stuff, kids are resourceful. They get into places. <laughs> it also reminds me of, did you guys see the TV show Boston Legal <laughs> with Denny Crane? He's also obsessed with guns. And he's like, how many guns are in there, Denny? There are guns everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All of this unstable thinking only got worse when he lost his job. In November 1982, James was laid off from his welding job at Bab Babcock and Wilcox due to the impending closure of this engineering firm. This caused James's understandable mental stress from the belief that he wouldn't be able to provide from his family, which was the last thing he needed. It was so bad that when he was speaking with a co-worker, he said he intended to kill himself as well as his family. It didn't help that soon after, James claimed to have started hearing voices, which only worsened his paranoia, depression, and conspiracy theories. He thought that President Jimmy Carter and later Ronald Reagan and the United States government were conspiring against him. It had these thoughts for years, and they wanted to destroy his life and cause him to become a failure, and this setback only furthered that idea. If you think someone that power, unless you're mega powerful yourself, if you're like the president of another country and you're like, man, I think Ronald Reagan is out to get me. <laughs> then that's like, okay, yeah, maybe. But if you're just a welder in Ohio, he's not. He's not. He's, he doesn't know you. He's never thought about you. No one like 10 layers of power down from him cares about you. <laughs> you're just a cog in a giant machine. They don't care. In early 1983, James attempted to pop off permanently by putting one of his pistols to his temple. Bentner managed to calm him down, stopping him from going through with it. Afterwards, however, James told her that you should have let me shoot myself, and knowing what's to come, she really should have. She should have had him committed, call the police, and get him put in a mental place where they can give him the right pills. And if there are no right pills, just keep him there forever so he doesn't hurt himself and other people. The family ended up selling their six-unit apartment for $115,000 in the spring of 1983, and James eventually found employment. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be like a million dollars. No, not a million. But like 500000 half a mil, at least. That's a lot of cash. You're going to be fine. 
But it didn't last long as the company went under five weeks later. Talk about rotten luck. Said luck only continued after he and one of his daughters were involved in a car accident causing neck pains as well as an increasing nerve tremor in his head and arms. Soon after, in the summer of 1983, the Huberties applied for residence in Mexico. They believed that the money they got from the sale of the apartments, along with $12,000 that they got after they sold their home, would last longer in Mexico while James looked for work. What, in Mexico? a bit of a bold move. James stated to his neighbors after the sale of his house, we're going to show them who's boss. Who? <laughs> he still believed that in the delusion that the US government was out to get him. So in his mind, this was the only way of escape. Wait, he's he's not moving to Mexico because he's like, my money will go further. He's moving to Mexico because he's like, the governments are out to get me. Holy shit, dude. It, someone need, he needs to have some like treatments. Like, these are all very, very big red flags. Way more than, like, oh, he likes guns. In October 1983, the family moved down to Tijuana, Mexico. I've <laughs> been to Tijuana, Mexico. <laughs> I, I think because I was uh, traveling around the States with a mate of mine. Like, this is 15 years ago now. And we were, in, we were in San Diego. We were like, should we just go down to Mexico? And it was, like, to Tijuana. And it was mostly just bars for, I get the feeling, like, Americans who are under 21 to get drunk and pharmacies selling all sorts of drugs that would normally require prescriptions. <laughs> he did make sure to take all of his guns and ammunition, because of course he did. Now, this one seemed like a great opportunity for James and his family. Sure, moving out of the country could be seen as a bit extreme, but now they had a chance to start over. And as far as Etna and the girls went, it actually worked. After moving in, they managed to adjust very quickly and were actually enjoying their new life. James... Not so much. Surprise, surprise, he never managed to actually assimilate into his new surroundings, speaking little to no Spanish and being unable to find any work. He was already closed off and irritable when they moved down to Mexico, and it only got worse after they did. He had failed yet again after being so confident that this would actually be a win for him, which only added to his misery. So James, having no actual care for the hardships of constantly moving house or the feelings of his so-called loved ones, he was already regretting his decision to leave the US. So in 1984, only three months after moving to Mexico, James and his family moved back to the USA. More specifically, to an apartment in San Ysidro, California, a largely poor district of San Diego, just north of the Mexico-United States border. Quite the fall, am I right, from living in a beautiful house and making good money at his job to losing all of that and moving to a small town with little to no money. James Huberty was a proud man, regardless of how unearned that pride was, and every single failure and setback chipped away at said pride until there was almost nothing left. I don't know. <laughs> like, I find it quite easy in this case, to separate the man and his mental problems and his obvious psycho tendencies from his genuine genuine success at work. Like, his proud, proud, I, I don't think his pride was unearned. Like, he made a bunch of money. He had a good job and all of this stuff. And then not having that later is going to be really hard. Like, that's going to be tough. For James, life in San Ysidro was abysmal, since it turns out that James is also a bit of a racist. <laughs> Wait, he moved to Mexico? <laughs> the Huberties were the only Anglo-Americans in the area, and apparently that infuriated James and gave him the right to treat people around him as lesser than himself. God, he really is checking all of the boxes here, isn't he? The second was that he did get a new job, but not for long. It wasn't even as a welder, his preferred occupation, but as a security guard with a security firm. He started in April and was assigned to a condominium complex in Chula Vista. However, given his horrid attitude and his need to be a pompous, holier-than-thou loner, he was fired in less than two months. Every failure, every setback, every time he found himself at the bottom of the mountain with almost no one to blame but himself. And we're back where we began. He reached out for help, a mistake led to him not getting it, and something within him finally snapped. The darkness had been corrupting him ever since he was young, and now it finally let go, opening the floodgates 
for the chaos to come. Hunting humans. Disclaimer. Brace yourself, Simon. This is about to get very, very bad. Oh, God. Okay, here we go. Goodbye. I won't be back. Those are the last words James Huberty said to his eldest daughter, Zelia, as he exited the home on July the 8th, 1984. As he watched him leave, she noted the Winchester 1200 12-gauge pump-action shotgun over his shoulder, the box of ammunition in his hand, and a large bundle wrapped up in a checkered blanket under his arm. Getting into his black Mercury Marquis sedan, James pulled away from his apartment, a blank look in his eyes, and he drove down San Ysidro Boulevard. His car was spotted by a number of eyewitnesses, all of which said that they'd seen him entering the parking lot of a Big Bear supermarket in the branch of the US post office before he seemed to change his mind and head to another location. And that's when he pulled into the parking lot of McDonald's. So let's set the scene. It's 3.56pm, and the restaurant is still somewhat busy coming off the lunch rush a couple of hours previous. The employees are enjoying a bit of a lull before they get hit again for the dinner rush in a little over an hour. There's people of all ages still in the building, from children to the elderly. 45 customers in total before James Huberty walked through the doors. Shotgun still in hand, he also came armed with a 9mm Browning HP semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi carbine, and a box and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon. Behind the register was 16-year-old John Arnold, simply working his shift, unaware that all hell was about to break loose. While still 15 feet away from this boy, James took his shotgun from his shoulder and aimed it directly at John's head. Before John could leap out of the way, James pulled the trigger. But nothing happened. It simply clicked, nothing came of it. John started backing away as James started fixing his firearm just as the restaurant manager, 22-year-old Neva Kane, came around the counter to see what all the hullabaloo was about. Now, before anyone says anything about why someone didn't just ch- tackle James to the ground, not only did this all happen very quickly, but John, as well as a number of others, believed that this sort was some sort of bad joke. There was no way some nutcase actually came into McDonald's and just tried to blast the cashier, right? I mean, yeah, and also anyone being like, oh, I'd have tackled him to the ground. It's like, yeah, okay, hero. Unless you've actually done that, um, how about you don't actually know how you'd react in a situation like that? Well, unfortunately, this was no joke. Once the gun was fixed, James aimed it skyward and sent a test shot into the ceiling, startling everyone in the restaurant. Before anyone could react, he aimed his Uzi directly at Neva, shooting her right underneath the left eye. She fell to the ground, succumbing to the wound minutes later. Then, gazing towards his original target, he blasted John in the chest and arm with a shotgun, wounding him terribly, before shouting to the whole restaurant, everybody on the ground. Calling the patrons dirty swine, Vietnam assholes, James claimed that he had killed thousands and would kill thousands more. 25-year-old Victor Rivera tried to talk James down and approached him with his hands lifted up. Victor tried to tell James that he didn't have to do this, but no one would tell James what to do ever again. Without hesitation, James shot Victor 14 times, all the while screaming at the innocent man to shut up. What happened from there was 77 minutes of pure panic and pain. Customers tried to hide under the tables and behind booths, but it wasn't enough. James walked through the restaurant, guns at the ready. His first targets after killing Victor were a group of women and children all huddled together. 19-year-old Maria Colmenero Silva was first, followed by 9-year-old Claudia Perez, while 15-year-old Imelda Perez, Claudia's older sister, was shot in the hand, but survived. He then turned his shotgun on 11-year-old Aurora Peña. She was wounded in the leg, but before James could do any more damage, Aurora's pregnant aunt, 18-year-old Jackie Rares, shielded her from any further harm. James would shoot Jackie 48 times. What happened immediately after is probably one of the most cold and heartless acts that I've ever encountered, whether it be in my research or any of the videos already on this channel. Jackie was a mother already by the time of the attack, and she'd brought with her a son, 8-month-old Carlos Rares, who was lying next to his mother's body. And with all the carnage around him, 
He started screaming and crying, undoubtedly frightened. James sneered at the baby, screamed at him to be quiet. And with no hesitation, with no hint of restraint, he took out the pistol and shot the infant in the middle of the back, killing him instantly. Not wasting any time, the slaughter continued with the death of 62-year-old trucker Lawrence Vasoulis. Next, James turns his attention to the Herrera family, who are hiding in the play area, trying to stay out of sight. 31-year-old Blythe Herrera, 33-year-old Ronald Herrera, 11-year-old Matteo Herrera, and Matteo's friend, 12-year-old Keith Thomas, were all shot. All the while, Herrera's parents did their best to shield the boys from the onslaught. Ronald was shot six times, but managed to survive, as did Keith. Sadly, Blythe and Matteo weren't so lucky. Both were killed by multiple shots to the head. After that, James turned his attention to 24-year-old Guadalupe Del Rio, 25-year-old Gloria Ramirez, and 31-year-old Aristarci Vuevas Vargas, who were trying to hide behind a booth. Del Rio was against the wall, being shielded by her two friends, and thankfully, she wasn't too terribly wounded. Ramirez was also unharmed, but Vargas was shot in the back of the head and would pass away the next day. 45-year-old banker Hugo Velasquez Vasquez was next, and he was shot in the chest and killed or trying to hide in a booth. All of this had only taken place in the span of a few minutes. A little after 4pm, Lydia Flores pulled into the parking lot of the McDonald's with a two-year-old daughter Melissa in the car. Pulling in along the drive-thru, she looked in through the pickup window and saw James Huberty unloading on those inside. Filled with panic, she reversed through the lot but crashed into the fence along the property. She then took Melissa and hid in the bushes nearby until the carnage was over. The next car wasn't so lucky. At around 4.05pm, Astolfo and Maricela Felix, 31 and 23 respectively, pulled through the drive-thru with their four-month-old daughter, Carlita. Seeing this, James exited the restaurant and unloaded both his shotgun and Uzi at the car. Marcella shot in the face, the arms, the chest, blinding her in one eye and permanently rendering one hand unusable, while Astolfo was shot in the head and chest. Carlita was shot in the neck, chest, and abdomen. All three of them exited the car, and out of the line of fire, but they were all badly injured. They handed their baby to a nearby woman named Lucia Velasco, who was able to get the little one to a nearby hospital as the parents collapsed in pain. Thankfully, the whole family survived. Around this time, three young boys were riding their bikes down the street, heading to McDonald's in the hopes of getting Sundays onto them what seemed like a normal warm day in San Ysidro. As they rode up, though, instead of ice cream, they rode into hell. Hearing someone from across the street telling them to stop, they all hesitated. But that's the time the James needed. He unloaded his Uzi and shotgun at all three boys. 11-year-old Joshua Coleman was shot in the back, arm and leg, falling to the ground, crying out in pain. He looked to his two friends, scared for them as well, only to see them too on the ground riddled with bullets. Omar, Alonso Hernandez and David Flores Delgado, both also 11 years old, passed away there in the street, shot in the back in the head. At this point, Numerous people were either wounded or dead, and fear gripped the survivors within the restaurant. James was getting ready to unload again on the poor, unfortunate customers when he noticed movement near the front entrance. An elderly couple, 74-year-old Miguel Victoria Lower and 69-year-old Ada Velasquez Victoria, were making their way towards the front, none the wiser of the evil waiting for them. Miguel reached out for the door, and just as he was about to open it, the explosion of a shotgun blast pierced the air, killing Ada instantly with a shot to the head and wounding Miguel's arm. James then walked up to them as Miguel, grief-stricken and bleeding, cradled the body of his deceased wife, trying to wipe away blood pooling from her face. He looked up at James, cursing him with every step he took. James in kind swore at the older man, raised his gun, and shot him in the head. That done, James then made his way to the back and towards the kitchen. Pushing through the doors, he spotted a number of workers trying to hide, that being 21-year-old Paulina Lopez, 19-year-old Elsa Boroba Fierro, 19... 18-year-old Margita Padilla, 17-year-old Albert Leos, 
17-year-old Wendy Flanagan, and a number of other workers. With a sneer, he cried out, Oh, there's more. You're trying to hide from me, you bastards. Screaming for their lives, the workers tried to flee as James opened fire. Paulina, Elsa, and Margarita were all killed in the spray of bullets, but Wendy, four of the other workers, and a female customer were able to get to the basement storage area in safety. Albert dragged himself down there after being shot five times, being critically injured, though he did ultimately survive. After shooting at a nearby fire truck as it passed by, wounding one of the firefighters in the process, he turned his attention back to the customers, ending the lives of 19-year-old Jose Perez, Jose's friends, the 22-year-old Gloria Gonzalez, and 18-year-old Michelle Carncross in a hail of gunfire. The final bit of bloodshed came when he took notice of Aurora Peña once again. Seeing her still alive, surrounded by her dead family and friends, he threw a bag of french fries at her, as if to humiliate her, before grabbing his shotgun and shooting her in the arm, and the neck, and the jaw but she managed to survive. And thankfully for her, and all those still alive in McDonald's, the hourglass on James Huberty's reign of terror and his life had finally run out. Ending the bloodshed. So I know what you must be thinking after all this. Where in the hell were the police? The answer? Well, off to a terrible start. I wasn't thinking that. I, I assume all of this happened very, very quickly. And someone has to call the police, and then the police have to arrive, like, I assume, in, like, a SWAT team or whatever. And that's not going to happen. I mean, this. Uh, how long did all of this take? It was a little after 4 p.m., minutes after the massacre commenced, that the first call came into the police. They were notified of the shooting taking place, specifically of a child in the restaurant that had been taken to the nearby post office for safety. So what took them so long? Well, that'd be a raw grade up. While the police were dispatched to try and deal with the threat, the dispatcher sent the officers to the wrong McDonald's, one that was two miles or three kilometers from the San Ysidro Boulevard restaurant. This slowed down their response time and in the end cost a number of people their lives. It took about 10 minutes after the first call came in for officers to arrive at the correct restaurant and a number of people had already been killed. 10 minutes still feels like, what is the expected arrival time of police on the scene of something like this? I guess it's going to be minutes. But 10 minutes, I mean... Is 10 minutes an outrageously bad response time? Setting up a perimeter, the officers set a lockdown of the area to keep people away in order to keep them safe and out of the range of gunfire. The whole time James was inside killing innocent people, he also made sure to take pot shots at the police. Several squad cars were pelted with bullets, all while the officers were doing their best to take stock of the situation. Because James was repeatedly switching between his different firearms, the authorities didn't know whether it was one shooter or multiple, and with the shattered glass of the windows, it was hard to get a read on the inside. They were worried about a hostage situation and trying to minimize casualties as much as possible. Within the hour, officers were joined by a SWAT team, and by 5.05pm, all law enforcement was given permission to end the target if they could get a clean shot. <laughs> Jesus, they, took the, they need permission? It's like the guy's in there shooting people. Kill him. That clean shot was a 27-year-old police SWAT sniper named Charles Foster. At 5.17pm, almost an hour and a half after the chaos started, James moved towards the counter in the doorway, which provided a clean shot from where Foster so was set up with his rifle. Lining him up with his telescopic sight, he didn't hesitate. I believe Foster said it best after it all went down. I never did see his face. The first time I was actually able to see Huberty, he was sitting on a counter in the middle of the building. Then he got up and started walking toward the door, where we had a better view of him from the neck down. He stood about six feet from the door, so I took the shot. He dropped the Uzi and was thrown back a few feet. James never knew what hit him. A shot rang out from approximately 35 yards or 32 meters away, flying into the McDonald's and piercing his chest. He was thrown onto the floor and died almost immediately, blood pooling around him and gushing from his back. The massacre was over, and James Huberty, age 41, was no more. 
After the killer was dead, officers entered, guns drawn. Still unsure if James was alone, officers asked the survivors if he was the one who caused so much carnage, to which they answered yes. By that time, many of the survivors had already tried to treat their wounds with napkins. In those 77 minutes, James Huberty had fired a minimum of 257 rounds and killed 21 people, along with injuring many others. Now, final note before I end this chapter. In the time I took to look up information to use in this piece, I actually came across the crime scene photo of James Huberty's body. I won't describe it at this time, but I won't lie to you either when I say that I felt a touch of satisfaction in getting a chance to flip off the maniacal asswipe. I feel satisfaction now as I say, f*** you, James Huberty. Yeah, I mean, sort of monster just goes into a McDonald's and targets families and children. Picking up the pieces... The section begins with a quote. A couple with a child in between them, a very young girl and a parent on the floor next to her, a man in his 20s or 30s, an older woman slumped in a booth, two teenage boys in t-shirts and shorts with their dinners still half-eaten on the table. I have a churning stomach. It looked like a war zone. Those are the words of Roger Hedgecock, mayor of San Diego, at the time of seeing the devastation at the site of the shooting. The whole of California was rocked by the heinous slaughter at the McDonald's, which quickly became known as the San Ysidro McDonald's Massacre. The people wanted to know what could have caused this disgusting attack, especially with how out of the blue it all felt. By the very next day, the shooter had been identified as James Huberty, his identity being made public. The vultures, aka the reporters, swarmed Earl Huberty's house in Mount Eaton, Ohio, trying to find out as much as they could about James. Earl was understandably heartbroken, describing James as a lost sheep, stating, Yesterday was the worst day of my life. I feel so sorry for those people. Because of the sheer amount of deaths in the massacre, local funeral homes were full to capacity, so much so that they had to use the Yan Isidro Civic Center to hold wakes for each victim. I'm not sure I could have come up with a more depressing pair of sentences had I tried. The gun debate, which still rages on today, was also brought up in the conversation, many wondering how someone so clearly disturbed was allowed to buy so many guns and so much ammo unchecked. And that's sadly a question that has yet to go properly answered even now. Well, it seems strange, like, as we mentioned earlier, the fact that his wife served time, right, for the, the gun offences. And the fact that he seems, he shot his dog in front of his neighbour, he pointed his guns at passers-by. It seems at some point someone should have looked into this. Like, his ownership of guns, that's fine. That's something that is allowed in America. But the fact that he was committing crimes with these guns and still being allowed them, that's not thats not good enough. The officers who responded to the scene didn't have it easy either. A number of them suffered mental scars just from seeing the sheer amount of death and carnage within the McDonald's that day. These include cases of sleep withdrawal, loss of memory, and guilt in the, following mo- in the months following the attack. Many criticized the police for how they handled it, but given the circumstances and the obstacles that stood in their way, I personally believe that the police did the best they could. To quote the San Diego Police Chief William Collander, I believe the operation was handled the way it should. Have been handled. Other than the, the the dispatcher sending them to the wrong McDonald's, which is a mistake, and I'm sure it's like it's not some egregious mistake. They did what they could. They responded quickly. SWAT showed up within the time. It seems SWAT shows up, and then they killed him. It's Huberty's fault. He's the one who went in there and killed all those people. As McDonald's, well, in the days following the massacre, all television and radio advertisements were temporarily suspended in a show of respect for the lives lost. Definitely a nice gesture, but what they did next, I'm not so sure. The McDonald's on San Ysidro Boulevard was refurbished and renovated within two days of the massacre. 
I know that life goes on and all that, and it's about getting back to business, but good lord. Apparently, the hope was that despite what had happened, the restaurant would just go back to normal and be another McDonald's, but I think not. The shadow of that day followed the store until its last day. Thankfully, common sense prevailed. After the decision was made, the restaurant would not open, and it was demolished on September 26, 1984. After that demolition, McDonald's donated the ground to the city with a stipulation that no restaurant be constructed on the site. For years, plans were in place to build something on the site, either a memorial park or a shrine to the dead. However, it wasn't until 1990 that something was unveiled. A memorial consisting of 21 hexagonal white marble pillars were constructed at 460 West San Ysidro Boulevard, and they're still there to this day. Designed by former Southwestern College student Roberto Valdez, each pillar is between one and six feet tall, and each bears the name of the victim from that terrible day. Commenting on the memorial, Valdez says, The 21 hexagons represent each person that died, and they are different heights, representing the variety of ages and races of the people involved in the massacre. They're bonded together in the hopes that the community, in a tragedy like this, will stick together like they did. And now I know what you must be thinking. What about his family? What of Etna and the girls? Well, they didn't have the greatest of times after everything was said and done. First off, James was cremated on July the 23rd, 1984. His ashes returned to his family before they were interred in his home state of Ohio. After that, and with their name being out of the public eye, Etna and her daughters all received death threats because of what their husband and father did. I fully understand being enraged over the death of your loved ones, but threatening to murder the relatives of a piece of who committed the crime, yeah, that doesn't fly, nor does it make any sense, and it caused all three of them to seek counseling for the mental strain. Yeah, this is not their fault. They were also victims of this man. Edna admitted that had she known the horrors he would unleash, she wouldn't have stopped James from ending his life. Finally, we need to talk about the lawsuits. The first is a bit understandable as a measure of grief, as several surviving family members of those who died in the attack filed lawsuits against McDonald's and the San Diego Police Department. Against McDonald's? For what, being the location? They believe the restaurant should have had steps in place to protect customers inside the establishment in case something like this was to happen, and the police should have acted quicker and better in order to take James down and save their loved ones. Second one, maybe, because of the screw-up with the location. The first one, it's like, what, do you want to have safe rooms in all McDonald's now and all restaurants? It's This is tragic, but that's unrealistic. All the suits were consolidated rather quickly and dismissed. The court said that there was no way McDonald's could have foreseen something of the magnitude of a raving lunatic with a number of guns walking into the restaurant, so they shouldn't be held accountable, nor should the police department, who they believe acted accordingly and to their best efforts. And finally, the next lawsuit was from Etna Huberty in, in July 1986. Against whom, you might be asking? Um, I would say against uh, the mental health care person who didn't call them back and could have stopped all of this. It's very weak. I imagine it will be dismissed, but that's who I would guess. Why? It was against McDonald's and Babcock and Wilcox, of course. Against McDonald's? And the former employer? His former employer is a, when, when he was a welder? What are you after? The reason? She blamed them for James's breakdown and terrible actions. McDon- how? McDonald's? How? Apparently it was James's poor diet from eating so much McDonald's that made him insane and decided to shoot up the restaurant. Oh, come on, what are you up to? Oh, and all those chemicals and highly poisonous metals he worked with on a daily basis scrambled his brain and caused him to shoot children. Now, I felt sorry for her, this whole ordeal, but this quickly reminded me that she wasn't exactly a basket of roses either. Thankfully, that was firmly dismissed. Edna Huberty died from breast cancer in 2003, and from what I can gather, both Zelia and Cassandra are alive and well, living their lives and trying to move past the dark shadow left behind by their monster of a father. In fact, Celia took part in an interview years later in regards to the San Bernardino shooter. When asked about her father, she stated if she could travel back in time, she probably would have killed my father before any of this would have occurred. As far as her life after the tragedy, she said she was doing well, though the road hasn't been easy. Quote, 
You can either dwell on the situation or move forward. If you're stagnant, you can sink into a deep depression. For me, I didn't go down that route. I moved forward and proceeded with life, the normal aspects of life. Family, friends, work. Yeah, good for you. Wrap up. And that brings our story to an end, and I won't lie to you. This one was difficult. I swear I need to find a lighter topic for my own mental health. James Huberty was an incredibly sad, apathetic man, one whose whole life revolved around himself, and whenever things didn't go his way, he blamed everyone and everything else. Whether it was his neighbors, the government, the president, or just America as a whole, it could never be his fault. Otherwise, he'd have to face the fact of how much a failure at life he really was. And I know what some of you might be thinking. He clearly had some form of mental illness. He was hearing voices, after all, and so schizophrenia is definitely on the table. And before his rampage, had reached out to help. It just got lost in misinformation and bad assumptions. I'll concede that point. That's very much true. But counterpoint. Mental illness or not, he chose violence. He chose, after planning it out over the span of a day, to grab his guns, go to a populated area, which so happened to be a crowded McDonald's, and shoot up the joint. In the end, he murdered a good number of people, stealing away their lives when they'd done nothing wrong. And even those who survived, they've undoubtedly been haunted by the awful memories of that day, and they carry the physical, mental, and emotional scars with them now. All because of a loser with a gun. The folks in the McDonald's didn't deserve to die, and the survivors didn't deserve to suffer. None of them did. It was a restaurant full of strangers, innocent faces who did nothing wrong, and to him, that probably was their crime. They were happy. They were enjoying their lives all the while. His had gone into the toilet. He'd been screwed over by the world. And this was one final act of rage, defiance, and selfishness to tell the world that he truly mattered. In Etna Huberty's own words, she believed that this was James's way to get back at society. He was trying to make society hurt the way that he was hurting. Now, as we exit the darkness together, we'll remember the victims of that tragic day. Their names will be on the screen now. And thanks for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.